You guys by now know my background. Um, my wife and I helped run a Christian voice camp for many years, and then after that, I became a hospice minister. And I was speaking with one of my patients, uh, one, of, one of the people that I was working with, and we were talking about things in the Lord. He said, I've been camping out Ecclesiastes 7, and I'm like, well, that's no wonder you're so depressed. <laughs> And he's like, no, 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 this has really lifted me up. So he said, read this with me. And so we sat down, we began to unpack it together. And he opened my eyes to some very special things. And over, um, over a period of about five years, uh, I found that 
I began to unpack this and do in different ways. You know, as we go through different life experiences, God refreshes a verse in our life. And it really is very, very real when it says that God's word is living and active within us. Because it takes that particular section and it is applicable at that moment. And then it applies and we can see how we can apply it over here. And it's amazing how fluid God's word can be in our life. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. That's interesting. Okay, so if we die, it's better than when we born or born. You know, probably. Okay, so how how would you unpack that? Because when you look at that, you're going, well, heck, man, the sooner we get to the end of the result, that's good to go, right? But that's that's obviously not the intent of the author. So when you look through this and you study and you read through the context of the scripture, because everything is to be taken in context. Okay, and I'm going to give you a concept about that. You know, my love of corny jokes. There's a man who went to a counselor and he said, "Well, the counselor said you're having trouble. Let me uh, let me give you some direction. I want you to go to God's Word because, well, how is God's Word going to help me with financial problems?" And the guy says, "No, no, just go to God's Word and trust me. It's the best counselor of all." About a year later, he sees him and the guy pulls up in a brand new Cadillac. He's like, man, that must have been good advice. He said, sure, well, sure enough. I only looked at God's word one time. I looked it up and I pointed, said chapter 11. <laughs> <laughs> for you younger guys, that means that he filed for bankruptcy. Okay. Now, context is very, very important. Okay. How we read God's word. And to give you an idea, when you read context, you read verses before you read verses after. And you, you, God gives us a brain for a reason to look at how we apply the scriptures to our life. So let's look at the reference. First of all, a good name is better than fine perfume. Okay. Now, this is not talking about Chanel number no. nine or whatever the various perfumes are all about. Okay. There's two references here. Okay. If you read through the very, what the various theologians say, they're going to direct you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. And you can read this scripture if you would like, but I'm going to read it fairly quickly. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to be a good and pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, we are an aroma that brings death, and to another, we are an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? That's pretty powerful stuff. Now, why would one be the aroma that brings life and the other an aroma that brings death? What are your thoughts on that, guys? Why would the same person bring two different aromas to two different people? What's that? Depends on the person. Depends on the person. Okay. And what about that person? Their belief in God. Their belief in God. Okay. What about in this particular instance, it may be two non believers? So why would the one be the aroma of life and one be the aroma of death? It's about the heart. It's about the condition of the heart. And this is what it's referring to. Now, it's interesting. I, I've done about a thousand funerals. And so in sitting up there and looking at the crowds, looking at people, you can look at the facial expressions as you go through the section of Scripture. Now, I will approach this section of Scripture in a funeral very differently than I will approach it with the body believers, which I'm confident the majority of people here have claimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so I'm going to approach today from that aspect. 
But there are so many opportunities here to share the good news of Jesus Christ in this section of scripture, it's unreal. So I just, I want you to cling on to this, come back, and I want you guys to unpack this in your own life later on. But here, you're sitting down, it's very common, you get done with the funeral, and then they give everybody one last chance to say goodbye, they come by the casket, it's not uncommon to walk by and, you know, greet the pastor on their way out, and you'll be greeting folks, and then one person will come up, and they make this wide, wide arc, as far as they can physically make it around me, and then walk out the door. And I thought about that, thought about that, thought about that, and later on I came across this section of scripture and I realized that this to them was the aroma of death. They did not want to hear this because it brought something into their lives that God had not prepared their heart for. And I make no mistake, God had not prepared their heart for that. And we know that God will do that because it specifically says that there's a time and a place where God will soften someone's heart, but God will also choose to harden someone's heart. Okay, and it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. It is God's word that brings conviction, not man. We are sowers, we are waters, we are planters, and we are those that will harvest. But we're merely tools of God to carry out His purpose. It's the Holy Spirit. It's His word that does that work. And God had not chosen for these people, for that particular people that would walk around that white ark, for that time. And so there are some here that may not know the Lord. And God may be working on your life now to soften your heart, to prepare your heart. And if you ever want to have a conversation, if you don't know where you sit with the Lord and you ever want to have a conversation, grab Bubba, grab me, grab Sid, grab anyone that you know has a firm foundation in Christ, come and talk to us. Here's another thing. If you struggle in doubt about your faith or where you stand, don't feel bad about that. Come grab us and come talk to us. Here's another interesting thing about a good name is fine for a few. How many of you guys are familiar with one of my all-time heroes, a gentleman by the name of Eric Lowe? Who was Eric Lowe? Anybody know? Sports guy out here, I don't know. Who was he? The Flying Scotsman. The Flying Scotsman. He won the 400 meter dash in the 1924 Olympics. Yeah, when he wasn't supposed to either. Yeah. Right? He refused to run on Sunday. He refused to run on Sunday. He was then all villainized for it and then greatly praised after he won an event he wasn't supposed to win, nor was he, nor was Britain supposed to win that event, period. And God, God lifted him up. And you know what? People still use him as an example of giving God glory. And his impact, that sweet aroma, continues to lift people up and convict them to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Even today, he ended up going in the mission field, having this massive impact in China, and then ultimately dying in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. And he had a big influence on the Japanese soldiers as well, which was fascinating. Uh, another, another great hero that's a little closer to home is Jim Elliott. You know, Jim Elliott was a martyr on the mission field, and he was famous for saying he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is an impactful statement that influences Christians today, even after the Lord has taken them home. And to the ones that he has influenced, God is accrediting this to his account. It is a, it is a fine perfume, folks. Adam Clark was another man in the 1820s. He was a theologian and a missionary. And nobody knows Mr. Washington. Me and maybe a dozen other people. So Mr. Washington was a gentleman, you were about to be introduced to him. Uh, he gave you permission to use his name, but he was, he was somebody who was in the process of actively dying um, and ill a lot of his life. 
Mr. Washington was a sweet African-American man who had one driving passion since he was about 10 years old, and that was the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I don't remember if it's first or second Thessalonians, but it says, make it, your, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we have told you. And so he drove, grabbed that as his life verse and his love of Jesus, and he built people up. And the first time I came up to his house, I look at his house, and in order for the house to look square, I kind of had to leave a little bit. Because his house was mean. His doors, none of his doors would shut, front door included. And I'm like, that house is about to fall down. Is it safe to go in? And I step up on the porch, and I'm not a light fellow, but I think I made the third or fourth step in, and my foot goes through one of the floorboards. And uh, no air conditioning, of course. And uh, we go in, and I'm visiting with him, and we had a wonderful time in the Lord. And I walk away as I normally did, meeting with fellow believers, especially believers that were preparing to enter his presence. I just walked away pumped because, as usual, I listened and they poured into me. And I, I would encourage where I could, but how cool is it to sit at the feet of these people who have been preparing your heart to enter the presence of God? This is very special, folks. This is very special. If you never have the opportunity, do it. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and what I mean by that is go volunteer with hospice. Go minister. Go sit with people and visit. You will have a very big impact. Now, Mr. Washington never really had more than a few dollars to rub together and had very little money. He also never went out and never, sought, never even sought government subsidies, none of those things. He just said, there's always other people who need this more than I did. And so he would go mow along, whatever it would be, and invariably he would go to the gas station and somebody didn't have quite enough to get the gas they needed. So he would peel off a few of his dollars and give them enough to get home or whatever it was. Or there was a missionary that was in need that he heard about and gone. He'd peel off a couple of dollars. And I was reminded of the widow's coins that she sat in. And this was a modern day widow that Jesus was referring to. What a powerful man of God who the Holy Spirit just filled him at all times. And he went home to celebrate uh, in the loving arms of Jesus. And what a special time that was. What a special celebration. So the day of death is far better than the day of one's birth. Mr. Washington, Eric Little, Jim Elliott, Adam Clark, uh, many, many others. You can fill in some blanks with people you know personally. What a blessing that is. Now, this is an encouraging thought I want you guys to think about. Um, Robert E. Lee once was said to say, you know, it is, it is good that war is such a terrible thing, or I might love to grow it, grow and love it too much. It's kind of an odd thought. But his reference wasn't just to war. His reference was to life in general. You know, we live in this Christless world that we're surrounded by people who don't know the Lord. We're, we're surrounded by death and sin and misery. We, I, I woke up uh, this morning and my hip hurt. I'm like, oh man, that was a miserable night's sleep. Like, you know, my, my head hurts all the time. I'm like, you know, there's many days when I find myself thinking, when God calls me home, there's going to be a lot of rejoicing. There's, by God's grace, there's a lot of living between now and then. There's a lot of preparation for me to do. But I can see an understanding as the older I get, this, this joy of going, I'm going home. And that day grows, every day grows a little bit closer. And it sets my eyes in a place where I'm supposed to. The Apostle Paul refers to it. He says, when you run, you run the race to win setting your eyes 
on the tape that is down the road. And this mindset prepares us for that. Uh, Steve, when is the best time to plant a tree? The best time? Yeah. 20 years ago. When you're... Yeah. <laughs> 20 years ago, right? Okay. When's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. Today, Today. right. When we have that mindset, when we set that spiritual mindset, we realize that God has called us to prepare all of our lives for the eventuality that we are ready to enter the presence, his presence and his kingdom. He calls us to put aside plant seeds of prepare in advance for things, not to wait till the end before we start doing, not before we get close enough to like, well, I'm just about there. It's now time to give my all to God. The time is now. We can't go back 20 years and start doing that, but the time is now before we do that. Now, the reason I'm getting a little bit ahead and out of order here, because there's a few references I want to make, but this is verse one in effect. So in verse two, it says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Okay. So this, this can be pretty easily understood. In the case of the house of mourning, um, what's it referring to? Funerals, places where people are in permanent, so typically hospitals. It can be uh, nursing homes, places where people are in absolute grief, or cemeteries. Okay. Now, it's not saying that we need to move into these spaces. But it's talking about a mindset. It's talking about a mentality versus going into the house of feasting. Okay. Now, we can look at several things here. Matthew chapter 3, 5, verses 3 through 4, the Beatitudes. We are all pretty familiar with that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, what we're dealing with here, when we read Ecclesiastes 7, is we begin to realize that what modern Western Christian culture teaches us is only tough from one perspective, and that is we're always to be joyful, we're always to be having a smile on our face. And when we read through Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and Ecclesiastes in general, it says now there's a balance to be had. We're not supposed to be always joyful, but we're also not supposed to be always sorrowful. But there is certainly a time and a place for it. See Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for war, peace, build up, tear down, time to mourn, and time to laugh. And so as we are looking at this, it talks about how it is better for us to go in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Well, in the house of mourning, what are we doing? What do we contemplate? Our mortality. Our mortality. We're contemplating our limitations. You know, as a teenager, I pretty much had this mental idea that I was absolutely invincible. So I'd go rock riding Broncos and, you know, I'd wake up all sore and stiff, but then I'd get up the next weekend to go do it again. And, you know, I'd get battered and bruised, but I was pretty much immortal until I ended up twisting my back and getting this, this spot on my spine that I, I had no feeling on my back back here. And it occurred to me that, you know, maybe I can actually get broken beyond what my body will repair itself. And it began to make me think about that. It is better to go in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In the house of feasting, when you, that picture crosses your mind, what do you pick? What do you picture in your mind? What do you envision? Eating, what? 
celebration. Celebration, okay. Celebration is no doubt a great place to, great time to have that in this place, right? Celebration is another one. It's also just going forward and only pursuing that which is happy, eliminating all other possibilities. And the scripture says there is a time for that. But whenever you don't have a heart of mourning or a house of mourning, what are you lacking? What are you missing when it comes to the heart? You are lacking the ability to repent. If you do not at some point in your life pull back from just only seeking that which is joyful and eliminating that as any other possibility, you eliminate your ability to actually come before the Lord with a repentant heart. Now, in the concept of mourning, there's four different areas that I've found that are relatively addressed within scriptures. And I'm sure if you look, you can easily find more. You look at Esther 4, you have Mordecai. Mordecai put on, he found out that his people, including himself, is going to be wiped out. He puts on sackcloth, he fasts, and he sits off in a private closet someplace, right? No. Where does he sit? Front gate. Basically goes out and he sits on the king's front door. And so he's making two statements. He's crying out to the Lord, and what is he doing? He's crying out to the public. He's making himself aware. He's making a need aware. And there's a time and a place for this kind of grief. There's a time and a place for this kind of mourning. David is in the process of losing one of his children because of sin. Because of sin in his life. Where does David go whenever he's fasting and praying? He goes to the Lord. And where is he physically at? He's in his palace next to this child that is dying. And he fasts and he prays, and he fasts and prays, and the child dies. And then what does he do? He says, this is what the Lord's will is, and he, he moves on. And he does this in a private setting, in a quiet setting. The only reason why we know about it is because it's written with and recorded within the scriptures. If you read Matthew chapter 4, verse 6 through 16, it's a reference to fasting. And it says that when you fast, wash your face, put on a smile, and when you go out in public, don't let anyone know you're fasting. So there's a time and a place to mourn when no one should know about that. There's a time and a place when you're crying out to God when it is between you and God and no one else. There's a time and a place to cry out to God because you're asking God to give you a revelation of the heart, to give you a change of heart, to for you to hear what he is saying. Now, I would encourage you to look at the section of scripture that Mark read for us. And, and when you look through that, it's, the, it's a relationship between the spirit of God and the spirit of man. And it's a, it's a super deep subject. And fasting has a massive impact on when we begin to relate to the Spirit of God. Because what's interesting about this section of Scripture is that God says that only our spirit really can know our, our motives, but the Holy Spirit can delve into all of that. And the things that we ourselves don't even know that we're mourning over or why we're mourning, God can reach down to those inner depths and give us comfort. Fasting really, really, really helps us with that. Inversely, God says that we can use our spirit 
to talk with God and learn new insights that are absolutely beyond a depth that we can even verbally express. How good is God, folks, that he would give us that? Another form of mourning is our heart condition in general and a purpose for mourning. And it ultimately is to change the condition of our heart. And so when it talks about the fact that it is better to go to the house of mourning, it's saying it's better to go there in such a way that you are willing to be changed by God, that you are preparing your heart in such a way that you are willing to take the burdens that you have, and it doesn't have to be a burden of sin. It could be a burden that you have, and that house of mourning is literally you going, God, I literally have reached the point I cannot handle this anymore. I'm laying this at your feet. And by it, without, and this is the thing that evangelical Christians struggle with is we spend so much time trying to do the fake it till you make it routine that we fail to prepare our hearts to the point that we're willing or able to give God that burden. And so we just cling on to it. And we say, well, God's big enough for everything else but this thing here because it's just not that important. And we may not say that in our own minds, but that's what we're saying through our action. And so if we spend all of our time focused on the laughter and the aspect of house of feasting and not actually willing to take the healthy aspect of saying, I'm willing to do some mourning here, we're never really going to leave the hell, leave and live the healthy Christian life that God called us to live. Acts verses 3, 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come to the Lord. So a heart that works through difficult times is a heart that has a burden that we can lay at the feet of our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> so I'm going to um, read a little bit further here. Um, but I want you guys to remember that, that section of scripture, that, that not that section of scripture, but that quote. The second part of this verse says, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take it to heart. Okay. So again, this sounds like it's a bit of a downer, but it's actually quite the opposite. Now, I had a, uh, I had a gentleman that I worked with for quite a while, and he was maybe one of the more bitter men I've ever met. And for lack of the ability to share his name, I'm going to call him Mr. Smith, and no, it's not Shane. Um, uh, quite the opposite. And this man had, if you sat and listened to his life story, I don't think he shared a joyful moment with me. It was from the beginning of his memories to the time in his 60s, every bit of his life was fraught with turmoil. Some of his own choosing and some of people doing things to him. And he was angry and bitter and upset. And he was always trying to get up and do more than he physically could. And it was just his body would throw him down into racking pain and convulsion. And he was absolutely so upset. And then the people in his household were miserable. He had this young lady that, that stayed with him that he kind of adopted that wasn't his daughter, but was, it was this very odd dynamic. And he loved her, but their anger between them was so intense. And so we were, um, I'm trying to remember how this worked exactly. I was there late at night for some reason. He was having a crisis. 
And so she comes in, she curses them out, she gets in her car and leaves. And so we're visiting some more. And I guess about half an hour later, we hear a helicopter fly over and then more lights. And as I'm leaving, there's sirens everywhere and police cars everywhere. Well, she had gotten her car left, pulled out, got keep on the deal. And um, I turned around, went back in, and I went in with the police officer and told him what happened. And he was just like, that's, that's enough. I, I, I'm, I'm done. I can't handle anymore. I just want to die. And so we had this conversation about these verses. And uh, you know, he, I don't think he had set foot in church once. But I was, I said, you know, truth is truth, whether you want it to be truth or not. And um, that was the moment that broke him, but not in a bad way. He was broken, but I don't, I'd never seen him cry before. He wept, and he wept, and he wept, and it was that breaking moment where he was able to take it and say, I'm. There's, I am insufficient. I'm not enough. I am broken. I can't fix it. All of his life, he's been trying to fix it. And two days before he died, he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, where he gave his life to God. You know, some people will come, uh, come into a doctor. Uh, they will come to them and the doctor will say, hey, you need to go home and get your affairs in order. And those people are very serious. They've got four or five months to live. They go home and they begin to prepare their affairs. They begin to prepare their heart, their mentality, their family, their friends, their finances. They create a will. They begin to divest of their precious physical belongings with the inside of this really wasn't that important to me anyway. Think about the things that we've cling to. It's like that item, I will, I will fight and die for that physical item because this is mine and I work hard for it. Now I've got this toy. And you'll destroy relationships over this or that. And then suddenly the doctor says, go home, get your affairs in order. And suddenly it's not important anymore. Perspective comes into play. Folks, go home and get your affairs in order. I don't know when the Lord is going to come and take us, but God calls us to have that perspective at all times. Put what is important first. Lay before us what God wants us to put first. And when we do that, that's when we start to change the world for Christ, not for us. How do you go home and put your affairs in order? And you don't have to be 75 or 78 or 60 or 43. You can do this at age 6 and 7 and 12 and 15 and 18 and whatever your age is. You can go home and put your affairs in order in such a way that you are preparing to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world because you recognize I have a limited time to give that impact. Yeah. Ecclesiastes verse chapter 3 verse 11 he has made everything beautiful in its time 
It's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Amen? Amen. God does is a, is a beautiful work in our life. Let's move on to verse 3. There's a lot more we can unpack there, but I'm only halfway through. It says frustration is better than laughter. Now again, this sounds completely counterintuitive to what you would hear in the Christian culture, especially Western culture. How can frustration be better than laughter? Anybody know who Thomas Edison is? <laughs> yeah, light bulb. I just got this bright idea. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's that guy. He was working on the light bulb, and he got, to, I think, item number 110, and his assistant, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Watson, was very discouraged. And he says, Well, Watson, we just found another way that doesn't work. Let's keep going. I think he went through a thousand different attempts to create the light bulb before God granted him success. Now, in this case, the frustration is slightly different in its focus because Edison was not working towards a labor of sin. He was just working towards a labor of invention. In this case, the reference to the scripture here can be found in an understanding of chapter 33, verse 10 of Psalms. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people he chose for his inheritance. Now, in this case, it's talking about frustration is better than laughter. It's talking about when we are going in the wrong direction and God says, we are going to stop right here and you keep banging your head against the wall, which I am chief among sinners in that regard, of trying to do the same stupid thing over and over again and then realizing this isn't working. God says, guess what? I'm frustrating your plans for a reason. There's a reason why there's a barrier in your path or why a boulder fell in your way. Because I want you to approach it a different way. I have someone's life I need you to impact. I need this. How many of you guys have had a sudden car failure or something break down on you? I, I don't need to ask for a show of hands because there's not a person who doesn't have a vehicle that that hasn't happened. Why did this break now? It could have broken last week. It could have broken last month. It could have broken five hours ago. But no, it happened right now. And I'm annoyed and I'm frustrated. And God says, I frustrated your plans for a reason. That's on a physical scale. But this, you can apply this in every direction. Physical as well as spiritual. As well as thought patterns. I've had situations going along where I've had to stop and go, my mind should be able to understand this concept, but I can't. I should be able to understand this basic understanding, and I can't. I had that situation in doing insurance, and no, I'm not going to bore you guys in doing insurance because that is the second most boring concept in the world is, you know, insurance. <laughs> there is one other more boring, and that's tax law. <laughs> I sat at my father's table for years and listened to tax law, so this is the second most boring concept. <laughs> But I couldn't understand this basic concept, and I finally called my boss, and I said, boss, explain this to me, because I'm going nuts. And she's like, really? It's this. It's like, oh, okay. By the way, how are you doing? Well, 
I had this thing happen in my life the other day. Oh, tell me about that. God was preparing my, me to speak to her about that issue. So when God frustrates, when he puts a barrier in our path, there's a purpose in that. It's not an accident. He's calling us to something. And rather than getting angry, oh, why is God doing this? We could say, ooh, there's an opportunity here. Maybe the guy at the park store that I'm about to go buy my starter from used to hear about Jesus. Maybe I'm going to be on the other side of the gas pump from somebody who needs to know something about God. Now, we can only do that effectively if we are also willing to be the real about our life. I know some people that are such great, glowing, wonderful believers, and I have trouble relating to them because they are never willing to talk about the hard times in their lives. In fact, I, I finally asked one that I came across who was grieving for their spouse, and I, I was asking him, and he's like, well, that's a, that's a sign of weakness. If Christians are weak, then God can't be real in my life. I'm like, oh, no. No, and we, we, ran back to, we ran back to these sections of Scripture, and we talked about it. I said, you are called to be a light, and sometimes... That means letting people see how God works within our own troubles. And if we can't show them that, they're never going to understand. A sad face is good for the heart. That's the title of the church because that's the meat of the issue. So if you read further in uh, Ecclesiastes 7, it throws out this serious conundrum. And I don't have time to take you all the way through there, but it says, hey, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly evil. And I'm like, why would the scripture even suggest that I be evil, be evil at all? And again, this is one of these things where you actually have to use your head. You have to think about it. Scriptures is not calling us to be evil. It's talking about us don't go into extremes. When it's talking about righteousness, it's not talking about the righteousness of God. It's saying don't be self-righteous. And don't be overly mean. But it says we're called to be a balance. And in here, when it says a sad face is good for the heart, it doesn't mean we walk around all the time with a sad face because I'm trying to have a good heart. Because if I only took this verse and walked away with the frown on my face, I'd be ignoring the other 30 verses that talk about a joyful heart and a joyful uplifted confidence. But the problem with our, again, with our Christian culture is we have a tendency to only pick sections of scripture that we want a needlepoint on our pillows, and then we ignore the rest. This may not be the kind of thing we want a needlepoint on a pillow and give to a friend. Okay? And guess what? A sad face is good for the heart. Away. But it is important for us to recognize that we need to have a balance of both and be willing to display within ourselves both the joy of the Lord, the joy of our face, but also when we are broken. And there's several reasons for that. You will find some of the most alone people sitting in church with you. They're so lonely because they are unwilling to explain why they are broken inside. They're quiet. They won't share because it's a sign of weakness. But the reality of it is one of the benefits, not only of going before the Holy Spirit, 
with a broken heart, but also a sad face, is that someone can actually come to you and say, what's wrong? How can I build you up today? Now, I am also guilty of this same problem. People come to me all the time. How are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. It's true. I am blessed. So maybe I should say, you know what? I feel so blessed, even though I've been having a hard time. Make sure that you are approaching life with true balance. Now, if you really are only going through wonderful blessing times, share that with them. The Bible says, blessed are those who mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. That's great. We're called to do that. The hallmark of the modern Western Christian church is the very opposite of what we struggle with in our reality. And we are in danger of being some of the loneliest people in the crowd if we're not careful. Because no one can relate to us. You know, my friend Tim Taylor, who was a former elder here, uh, one of my favorite moments in my memories, he came in and I, oh, Tim, how you doing? Man, I'm having a hard time. Oh, this is me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just kind of kept walking. I'm like thinking about it later. I'm like, what do I do with that? I'm a young guy. I mean, I'm probably at the time I'm like 27 or 28. And here's this elder telling me, He's having a hard time. And I'm like, I didn't even know where to go with that. So I just like, okay. You know, and I just kept moving. I was clueless. I, I had not prepared my heart to know how to encourage him. So when I, I learned as the counter to the sad face is good for the heart, realizing that when I'm asking somebody how they're doing, am I asking because it's just the most culturally acceptable thing to ask? Or am I asking because I want to know? And I'm willing to hear the answer either way and then respond how God would call me to respond. It's a genuine question. And it's a great question, but are you asking out of a cultural norm? Or are you asking out of a genuine heart? And it's something that you need to grab onto and you need to say, is this, am I doing this the way Christ would have me do this? Being real on both sides of that fence. You know, Joe, too, is interesting. I want to read this to you guys because you want to talk about grief. I'm, I'm not sure there's many people who would be able to compare it. There may be a few, but not many. When Joe's three friends, Eliphaz, I always, my brain wants to read it the termite, but it's the termite. <laughs> Bildad, the Shuhite, there's our little guy, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard all about the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. Those are good friends. Then they opened their mouth. <laughs> they did come to him and they go, uh, one of his friends, one of the three said, hey, 
you grieve. You've got a season here. You're going to continue to grieve. Get up. Let's keep moving forward. The other two were like, what kind of sin did you commit? So when we do bring encouragement to people, when we do try to lift them out, consider how you choose to encourage someone. And when someone comes to encourage you, one of the things that you need to do is even when you don't want to be encouraged, is cry out to God and say, what's going to happen next is not going to be easy for me. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've had pain that I don't want to be encouraged from. I just want to hold on to my pain. And I've certainly walked a lot of people through that because that pain is something comfortable. It's something I know, and I don't want to let that pain go. Lord, save you guys from such a day. And when you grab onto that pain and you hold on to it, that's your comfort. And it's a poor comfort, but it's there. And so it's only God that can give you the ability to take that pain and put it down and lay it in his feet. So one of your prayers when you come with that pain is, God, I literally am insufficient to know how to let my spirit even cry out to you. This is that scripture verse that says, he knows what we need before we ask him. It's not talking about bread on the table. I know I need bread on my table. Is talking about that pain that is so heart-wrenching that I don't even know how to let it go, and I don't know how to be encouraged. That's why the scripture says, laugh with those who laugh and mourn with those who mourn, because sometimes all you can do is cry with someone. I have been to many, many homes as a police chaplain where you walk in the door, you knock on the door, and you're the stranger standing on the door. Can I help you? Can I come in? No, no, can I help you? Well, it would probably be better if I came in and we visited. For a while. Why don't you sit down? No, I need to stand up. Okay. Well, your wife uh, was in an auto accident today, and she's passed away. There is different layers of pain that people experience, and some of it will cause them to collapse. I had one gentleman say, well, praise the Lord. She's gone home. And I've had other people who just fallen, collapsing, just kind of help them fall to the ground. And the only thing you can do is just collapse with them and hold them. And the pain is immense. And there's no fix for their problem but Jesus. There's no, I can't untake that problem away from them. I can't remove the fact that their wife of 25 years or 40 years is no longer there. They didn't prepare for that. It just was there, and then she wasn't. And so God says, just mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with those who grieve. Laugh with those who laugh, because there's going to be plenty of seasons for mourning. So when is the best time to prepare for this? And so I don't mean this with a heavy heart for you guys. This is to be taken with great joy. This is to be taken with great happiness, not because, hey, this is a heavy sermon and this is burdensome, and I really don't want to delve into this right now because I'd rather feel this happy emotion. But it's more along the lines of going, because we can grieve, we can now process it and give it to God. And it is no longer something, no longer something I have to bear alone, and 
no longer something I have to bear, period. So Jesus says, my burden, my yoke is light. What's interesting thing about this, the reference to a yoke is that it's, a yoke isn't necessarily designed for one. It's typically designed for a team. You're the other side of that yoke. Jesus is bearing that with you. And you, it's something that's important that we dwell on this understanding. And so I want to encourage you guys to go home and get your affairs in order. Not because we're going to die in six months, but because God is calling us to prepare for a season of work that he wants us to do. And to keep our eyes set on the tape that a race would have for the future. Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I looked and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is why we have hope and joy, and why when we finish reading these sections of scripture, we can approach it with great joy and great gratitude. Will you join me here? Father on high, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And while you've gone to prepare a place for us, O oh Lord, Lord, may you renew our hope within us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit give us strength, not just to prepare for the future, but prepare for the everyday. It says in your word, Lord, do not worry about tomorrow. It has enough trouble of its own, Lord. Lord, may we set our eyes on you. Prepare our hearts every evening and every morning to take up your cross daily. Not seeking pain, that, that comes on its own. But being willing, when we see sin in our life to repent of, when we see a need to lay things at your feet, God, to do it. Lord, if we have things in our life that we need to turn over to you, Lord, Help us to examine our hearts, help our spirit to look within our own motives and go, God, I need to give this to you today. Or if we need to come before you, if, if there's someone here who has not asked them, asked you to be the Lord of their life, to write, cry out to heaven and say, God, you are now my Savior because I know you will, you will bear my burdens. Because there's a burden in my life that I cannot bear on my own. Lord, help us as individuals to give that to you today, Father. And Lord, help us to take that to the people of Bastrop, for only in that reality will you bring change to our community. Lord, may we be your servants today, and may we set our eyes on you in this fashion, Lord. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.